Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. The number one thing I think anyone can do to help stop the climate crisis is to be democratically active. Because whilst we can all do our own things, which are good to do and important to do, we're going to need government to do a lot. Hello and welcome to Local Zero with Fraser, Becky and Matt. In this episode, we're looking at the local electricity bill, which would as you might expect from the name, support communities to supply electricity to local consumers, which at the moment really isn't very easy. The bill's attracted support from around 300 MPs and it's currently moving through Parliament. Its supporters claim that it could unlock additional benefits for communities whilst also bringing to market some of the most affordable forms of renewable power, like onshore wind and solar. There are, however, wider questions about which communities stand to benefit, potentially at the expense of others who may not be able and willing to generate and supply their own power. So what can be done to encourage smaller, locally focused supply while still protecting consumers' rights? Luckily, we're joined for this episode by Steve Shaw from Power for People. Power for People have been lobbying hard to push this local electricity bill forward, and lobbying represents a critical part of climate action. So we consider what levers we can pull as constituents, voters and organisations to get decision makers to take notice and move forward the things that we deeply care about. So really interesting stuff. But before we get started properly, just our usual reminder that we'd love hearing from you and chatting with you about these issues on Twitter. So find and follow us there at localzeropod. And also, if you have thoughts that are too long for your average tweet, email us at localzeropod at gmail.com. So, team, how are we doing? It's uh, it's certainly cooler in Glasgow this week than it has been. <laughs> I'm steadily but surely cooling down. I, I mean, it didn't even reach the heady heights of 40 plus degrees in Glasgow. I think, we, I don't even know, we maxed out at about 35. It was, it was enough. Mm. More than enough. Yeah. It's too much. Horrible. It's too much. 
I have Scottish blood, Scottish skin, Scottish <laughs> temperament. I'm not built to to withstand it. Even your av- average Englishman, Fraser. Let me tell you. I'll Scotland, tell you what, Fraser. You're, you're looking a lot a lot more comfortable now in your long sleeve jumper, sat in what is I can only describe as a chair from like the Starship Enterprise or something. <laughs> yes, uh, for the listeners who don't know, I'm currently mid moving house just now. So I'm at um, I'm at my in laws just now in Forfar, just in the northeast outside Dundee. My father-in-law has a particularly lavish office setup. Impressive, say, I think, is the including word. Including what the... can only be described as a throne. It's not an office yeah. chair. It's and a throne. You've already been told off by a producer for putting your microphone in the yeah. bottom of the first box that you packed, which means it is completely inaccessible. Um, yeah. At the so, time, anyway. I thought it would give me an excuse to not have to come along and do this today, <laughs> but I felt guilty. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so how how did we find the heat? I mean, we know we're kind of joshing and laughing about it, but there were some really really distressing scenes. I mean, the the footage that sticks in in my mind was um, uh, I think taken by a fireman in Dagenham. Initially, the footage because everything was so destroyed, I thought it was footage from California. Um, you know, some of the the horrible scenes we've seen there, such as the town of paradise sort of you know, missing from the map but this was these were semi the closer you, you know you looked you saw little hatchback cars you saw semi-detached houses yeah. this was suburban england yeah. um which was just eviscerated by fire and i think at that point the penny really dropped for me that we are in the middle of this not at the beginning of this a friend of mine described it as that kind of um you witness the the apocalypse through camera phone footage until eventually you're the person holding the camera it's that sense now that even even last summer it was greece and the islands there and it was and it was portugal and it was it felt like it was edging closer but it's it's here and it's now i think this is the a big part of the the conversation that we've been having is so much focused around our kids future and grandkids and but there are a lot of people around the world suffering with the present just now and it's 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 unavoidable it's here it's it's happening. I'll tell you what really worries me though is like I, you know we're talking about this like it was something like you know recognizing the sheer devastation potential that temperatures like this are having now. But you know what's going to happen as we see longer stretches of time and more frequent stretches of time where we're getting up to these temperatures or hotter temperatures. Yet. I still think there's part of a prevailing narrative of like, yay, the sun's out, like get to the beach, <laughs> oh, like man. let's, you know, like let's enjoy it. Oh. Um, you know, it, it worries me. And so I was lucky enough to be on holiday whilst this was happening. So it wasn't like I was sitting in my office or having to work. I was also close to the beach. So that was really nice to be able to cool off. But it was really, it really hit home for me actually looking at my poor little dog. So my dog is a black cockapoo. Fraser's nodding along like you had this issue too, I'm guessing. But like, Mm -hmm. so she is black. She just absorbs all the heat coming at her. She's also kind of fluffy, like needs a groom. We try and keep her trim, but you know, just, she was just panting and panting and panting. And there's so little that you can do yeah. we were just in like pouring water on the poor thing but, but it, the, you know that really Becky, your, your point about me. folk kind of you know in, in enjoying the heat i mean you know look we spend 10 months of the year maybe 11 in in, in scotland yeah. living through this interminable rain and yes. mildness right so I, I can understand that but but what was i found really shocking is i woke up the, the morning after the record heat and mm-hmm. uh, an easyjet notification on my phone popped up and said don't want the heat wave to end, hop on a flight to Spain. Oh, God. And I was like, 
What? But you're thinking people are trying to profiteer off these record-breaking temperatures. The, the the disconnect, really, from what we were seeing from mm-hmm. you know the, uh, the weather forecast, where the, the you know the, the weather presenters were sort of shaking their heads and saying, "I never thought I'd have to deliver this forecast." But yeah. um, I mean, it' very odd, and I think it's probably just that bit about people adjusting, really. But I want to ask you both: Did you experience anybody? Maybe this was a you know a shock to them, and it started to change their minds, folk who you felt have maybe been quite disengaged until recently and who maybe turned to and said, oh, God, it's this is happening now. Mm. Maybe a little bit, a little bit. Certainly people were talking about it more and it seemed, it seemed to be the prevailing narrative was much more around, okay, we understand that this is a climate thing now. And it felt like a bit of, a, a bit of an awakening to that. Whether or not that translates into sustained concern or action, I don't know. We'll see. But it certainly, it certainly felt to me like the people in my life were, were switching on a little more to it. But maybe that's a biased sample. That, that's good, though, because awareness precedes action. I have to say that despite the number of conversations I had with people about like, oh, my God, isn't, isn't it hot? There was very little talk about climate change in amongst that. And I do wonder whether, you know, we've had... Not as hot as this, but we've experienced heat waves before. I certainly think that the other more extreme events that we've experienced in recent years, particularly around flooding, for me, that triggered more conversations around climate change than the extreme heat did. Mm, That's interesting. Maybe it's also because it's summer and I was interacting with people that were on holiday. But yeah, I had a lot of conversations about the heat, but but very few that then came back to that concept of like, this is happening because of climate change. The media coverage blew my mind as well. I mean, look, you know, we're not afraid of bashing the the odd newspaper here or outlet, but (laughs) the the one that really caught my mind was the Daily Mail. The day before, I think, the record-breaking temperatures or the day of, you know, was kind of basically saying, look, toughen up, get a grip, you know, get things get hot. And, and then the next day when we had the fires, there were these headlines saying, you know, um, with regards to being kind of the, the busiest day ever for London Fire Brigades, or certainly since since the Blitz in the Second World War. And you're thinking, how, how can, how do those two connect together? And what is the responsibility of the media to kind of educate folk to understand what's happening because at that point if i were the average reader of that i'd, I'd be quite confused about the situation yeah it's cynical and I, I i don't think it's unlike the daily mail necessarily i i think dissonance is built into their their business model we don't know we're not on the inside of it but my impression has been there's just such a, such a a lack of sincere concern in general it's the climate was no, notable from its absence really in these headlines yeah absolutely i mean across the board so let me point at the daily mail here i think the only paper I'm, i may stand to be corrected but i looked across the headlines that day the only paper that it had in big bold print was the i i news um related to i mean obviously you know others guardian independent were carrying stories and climate was kind of embedded but from many of these, it was record-breaking heat, yeah. not record-breaking climate change-induced heat. Yes, and and they're two different things, right, Becky? Because you were yeah. talking about, you know, we've had extreme weather before. Yeah, it's, it's how the number of days of record-breaking heat we've had in the last decade yeah. far outweigh those that we've had in the last century. They do, they do, and but there is there is that disconnect in people's minds, I think, and you know, and I would say a lot of people probably are used to being on holidays and experiencing heat like that, if not here somewhere. And so I feel like, 
I look at myself and in my own mind too, I certainly connect other extreme events, whether it's the rain and the flooding, or even for me, sometimes I'm, I make the connection much more strongly, like if I'm stuck in a traffic jam on a motorway and I just see the smog around me, right? I, I connect that much more closely with concepts of climate change than I do the extreme heat, even though the extreme heat is clearly a massive indicator. It's, yeah, there is that that disconnect. Under yeah. Yeah. Is extreme heat more kind of, is, is that more kind of frogs in a pot yeah. rather than... Like, you know, something tangible yeah. is happening, a big a disaster happens or something that you can see mm-hmm. versus how oh, it's just getting a bit a little bit hotter than last year. It's just a little bit hotter than last year. It's it, okay. it remains to be seen, but this is the one, not the last time we'll see this. But, mm. I mean, the, the topic for, for today's pod, I guess, is well, it's not directly linked to this, but in the context of a climate crisis, but also in the context of a cost of living crisis, which, you know, just this week we've heard uh, new numbers, um, projections coming out from a, from a National Energy Action, uh, more than 8 million fuel poor that they're expecting from from later this year. We're looking for solutions, any solutions we can find. And, and today's episode is all about local electricity supply. And really what it's exploring is how community-generated power can supply the needs of local community consumers, i.e. people in that that local area. Ideally, clean power and cheap power. I'm guessing you two, and well, I know what you do. I know this is something that's possibly of interest to you both. Spoiler, I know it is. Just a, just a, just a teeny <laughs> just bit. A bit. I mean, and I, I think that it's actually a really, a really, really important topic. And in fact, Today, this morning, my husband came home and he's like, did you see the article in the paper about the price of electricity in London last week? Which is not, I mean, Matt, I know you and your wife like quite often talk about things related to your work. Like my, I don't tend to with my husband. So it was quite, you know, for him to be bringing that up. But, you know, last week, just after the, after the heat, so it was July 20th, there was a huge surge for electricity demand, which coincided with a bottleneck on the grid and it saw I mean London only narrowly missed a blackout as as I'm led to understand by the by these articles I'm sure like we can go to our colleagues uh for for more information on that but they paid um 9,724 pence no sorry 9,724 pounds and 54 pence per megawatt hour which is more than 5,000% higher than the typical price of electricity. And um, which, I mean, not, I mean, the, the period over which that ran was was not a, a huge amount of time. Um, so we're not talking about like, that's the new sort of standard price. But, you know, we had to, to crank up the, um, the connection with Belgium and get our electricity from across the pond in order to avoid this blackout because we did not have enough power in the grid to meet the demand at that point in time. And so when we're looking at that, it just sort of really, really brings it home how much we need to rethink where our power is coming from and what power that is. Absolutely, Becky. And I guess in that context, it's about us trying to squeeze as much power out of indigenous sources as we can, because, you know, we can't, necessarily rely on other countries to have that surplus all the time. I mean, interconnectors are absolutely, uh, you know, an integral part of a, of a, uh, an integrated and balanced European network. But, you know, in this cost of living crisis, in this climate crisis, we are having to look at self-sufficiency. And so today's pod is very much about that, about trying to, you know, unlock those indigenous sources, but to do so in a clean way, but also in a cost-effective way. So 
I think in order to tell us a little bit more about this, we've got to bring our guests in. Hi there, I'm Steve Shaw. I'm the director of Power for People, which I founded a few years ago. My background is in parliamentary campaigning for environmental causes. Previously worked at other larger NGOs like Friends of the Earth. Welcome, Steve, to Local Zero. It's absolutely fabulous to have you along. It would be brilliant if you could explain to our listeners, first and foremost, what Power for People is, what does it do? And then it's kind of connection um, and interest in, the, in this local electricity bill. Hi, Matt. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, we are uh, an environmental campaigning organisation. We have two broad aims. The firstly is we want to see the UK, it's the UK where we, we are focused, uh, we're not international. So we want to see the UK accelerating the transition to 100% renewable energy. We know it's got to happen and it is happening in the UK and that's a good thing, but it's just not happening fast enough. Bodies like uh, the Committee on Climate Change, which is the parliamentary body that monitors the government policy on reducing emissions, they're absolutely clear. We are way off track in meeting the emissions reduction trajectory that we're going to need to meet in order to do our part in helping stop the climate crisis. So that's the first thing, accelerate that transition to renewable energy. But the second thing that we, we want to see, and this is equally as important, is that local people benefit, that communities benefit, that you and I are seeing it in our communities. We're really seeing it tangibly. That's absolutely vital because people aren't going to welcome it otherwise, and understandably so. So yes, yeah, so we want to see that acceleration in the transition and people benefiting from the transition. Let me just jump in there. I mean, so you're talking about people benefiting, people, like local people in local communities from these, um, I guess, local action. But maybe you could just explain a little bit more, you know, what, are you, what do you mean by these benefits, right? So how exactly could the local electricity bill, which is, I guess, fundamentally what we're talking about today, how could that start to deliver benefits? Like, you know, I live in a, you know, 1900s end of terrace house in a street in the south side of Glasgow. What would that actually mean to me? So with the local electricity bill, we're trying to change the way the UK's energy system works quite fundamentally. At the moment, you and I are all, we're all buying our electricity from a big utility. But there are these community energy groups. I know you've covered really well previously on your show. And they do fantastic things. But there's very few of them, really. And they're generating a very small amount of the electricity that we currently have. About The generation is about half a percent of all UK uh, generation at the moment. So really small. But the potential for the, them to grow in number and size is huge. And that's what we're trying to unlock, unblock. They've hardly grown for six years. They did previously receive a, an export um, kind of guarantee. It's called the feed-in tariff as a subsidy. That's gone. What we're trying to do is we're trying to create a system, and this is what the bill would do if it became law, where you and I, instead of buying from those big utilities, we're buying directly from a local provider. So a community energy company or a community energy cooperative. So to give you a tangible feeling of what that would be is, I live in North London. There might be a North London uh, community energy cooperative that is effectively sort of pooling 
Um, the various bits are probably mainly solar around North London, but it's going to be different depending on where you live. And I could be a direct customer of them. And then the tangible benefits locally would be things like, well, jobs. I might know neighbours or friends in North London who actually work for this new cooperative because they're going to need to be, you know, they'll be professionalised. They'll have staff. Also, um, it's quite possible that my bills will be cheaper. They'll offer me a cheaper tariff to the options that I've got from, you know, the big utilities. But then what happens as well is all of the good things that those community energy groups are currently doing, and there's enormous range of, of examples, but one is um, we were looking recently at um, repowering Balkum, which is in, uh, in, in Sussex. You might, have, might, yeah, you might have covered them. You know, they, they've, they've um, provided for new refrigerators at the local food bank, taking the revenue that they're receiving from what they're doing. And then providing that in the community, so a sort of a community service. And there's all kinds of examples like this. So I might see that kind of thing going on in my community as well. And all of it I know is happening because of this ability for local people to be buying their electricity from that local community-run initiative. So we talk a lot about Steve, and I think you're not going to find any any resistance here about the sort of the co-benefits of a community approach and a local approach. But in terms of we're we're obviously we're in the throes of a massive cost of living crisis too, right? So Aside from those, those, those big sort of social, the wider benefits, is there scope for local supply for the local electricity bill to help people through cost of living? Can it knock a few quid off of your bill? Yeah, definitely it can. One reason is we've got a market that's largely kind of unchanged um, since it was designed, an energy market, I mean, um, since it was designed in the, in the early 90s when the system was privatised. It doesn't recognise the fact that physically it's more efficient to use electricity closer to where it's generated. If you are um, perhaps in a rural area and you're turning on the kettle and you can see a turbine outside the window somewhere in a field and it's turning, generating, you are physically using that electricity. And that's a really efficient way of using it than if it's a turbine, you know, 100 miles away, perhaps in northern Scotland. But the market rules we have don't recognise that. Companies like Octopus that um, you might have heard, they've got, their, they've got their sort of cool, you know, if you use wind turbines near where some of their customers are, they're sort of trying to kind of crowbar some kind of benefit. But, you know, they're anomalous. They're, they're doing it out on their own. And there's, there's no way that you can require other big utilities to do it. So what the local electricity bill does is it says, right, well, let's just change the market rules so that then you can directly benefit from a local smaller provider. So... So I think this is fascinating. And I'm also looking at the fact that we are, we've just gone through a phase where countless smaller suppliers have gone bust, in part due to the, you know, the increased energy prices. And, you know, and you're right, there, there have been a few and we've seen quite a few sort of dip in and then dip out of this market, not perhaps as, as local as you're talking about, often at a slightly bigger scale. Would this bill provide more secure routes for that local electricity. You know, I, I have friends that have been, you know, have chosen to go with some of these smaller companies because of the potential benefits, because of what they believe in and the values that they hold. Now these companies have gone bust and they've been defaulted to very unfavorable tariffs with suppliers that they never would have chosen. Can the local electricity bill help prevent that? Or do you still see that as being a, a potential issue? We're not trying to prevent what caused that. And the way we understand why that happened is 
the the obligations uh, on being a licensed supplier are very substantial. You know, sort of setup costs are estimated around a million pounds at least. You need to have at least two hundred thousand customers as a utility to 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 kind of break even to just have a chance of being financially viable. So clearly, you know, that effort made by a handful of local authorities to kind of set up their own energy companies that sold to customers and were they're licensed or some of these, you know, some of those smaller ones that went bust, you know, they, yeah, they, they were, the, the risk they were facing was crazy. And what a surprise. In fact, no expert was really surprised that a whole bunch of them went, went under as soon as gas prices spiked. So we're not trying to kind of fix that kind of problem in the market. But what we want is we do want an ability for if you do have local generation that's community owned and community run to be able to buy from that directly. Now, where you've got to try and square it is, well, hang on, but those obligations are what's creating all those big costs and risk for the big utilities. And a lot of those obligations are good. They're there for a good reason. We have, it's called the supplier hub model. That's the, the system we've currently got. Um, we, we don't want to remove you know, those obligations. They're, they're good. So the way around it is probably to have, and we're working on the exact detail of this, but it's going to be something whereby you keep your existing larger suppliers and then they are extending out that kind of set of things that they're already doing to do with billing and all those other obligations. And they're providing an ability for the local community run generator to then sell to local customers. We had an attempt to do this actually quite a few years back. It was called License Light. So the idea, yeah, exactly the idea I've described. The problem with License Light was the fundamental problem was there was no obligation on the big utilities to do it. And so, oh, what a surprise, none of them actually did it. And the, the three attempts to do License Light, one of them was actually um, the, the London, the Great London Authority tried to sort of do it together with NPower. They all failed. But interestingly, as well, it's still the example that the government are giving to our supporters and to MPs who are standing up and advocating in Parliament for the Local Electricity Bill. It's still what the government are saying is the reason why we should all just go away and that it's fine. So, Steve, on that, for a community generating power, as I understand it, the kind of four, four ways forward. One is to become licensed. But that's a nightmare for them because it's bureaucratically, you know, onerous. Uh, it costs a significant amount of money, up to maybe up to a million pounds to actually do it. So, so for these small communities, that's off the cards. Two is to be to be exempt from licenses. Um, that there's that there's uh, there's provision for that, but actually, ultimately, in the, from Nigel's piece, you still have to uh, align yourself with with much of the the, the license regimes and the, the rules and regs around that. Anyway, three is to do license light, as you've said, which is kind of a, a fudge between license and, and exemption, um, and four, which has begun the, become the most common, which is actually partnering with a licensed supplier, often known as white labeling, which is. And the way I often explain this to people is, do you remember when Sainsbury's offered you power? It wasn't Sainsbury's. They were partnering with a, a licensed supplier. Um, so those are the routes available. Oh, I guess the fifth is that you just use this smart export guarantee and just, you know, don't bother with licensing and you just sell it to a licensed supplier. What you're saying, in essence, is that isn't enough to unlock community power. 
and to bring it to market. So what might this bill do? What's the, what's the other way forward? So this, this bill makes it possible for the community groups that have got their generation to actually sell directly to customers that are local. That's what we want. There's no reason this can't be done physically or, or as a market mechanism. It's not there's, there's some kind of fundamental problem against it. It's just the way the rules have been set up so far. They do it in Germany. Germany has a thousand uh, different companies of all sizes that sell directly to local customers. I mean, people like you and me buying, you know, in our homes. Um, almost all of those uh, 1,000, I think there's over 1,000 um, companies are, they're either very, very small or they're kind of regional sized. They have a big four utilities that control about 40% of their market. Whereas here, we've got our big six, is it, that control, you know, around about 80% of the market. This is completely different and absolutely no, it's a clear, now I'm not saying we want to become exactly like Germany, but it shows that it's just a set of market rules. We can change these rules and that's what the bill would do. But, but, do, but does, make, this, does this still involve the big license suppliers? So our communities, will they, because I think you mentioned this before, are communities going to have to partner with license suppliers to sell to communities? Is, is, is this the vision? Because it sounds a bit like the current white labeling model, but um, I'm trying to understand how it's different and how that unlocks new benefits for communities, because because that's integral, I think, for you know the debates that will be raging in Parliament about this. That that's the crux of the matter. It's similar to white labelling, but it's it's not it's not white labelling. The the key, as I said, and I'll re-emphasise, is it's about putting an obligation on the existing licensed suppliers. Okay. To make it work. Right. Without the obligation, it's not going to work. We've thought long and hard about this. We don't want to set up a situation where community groups that want to sell customers are are told you've got to become a licensed supplier stand alone because as we've just said it doesn't work the obligations are too much they'd fall over um as we've kind of seen with the, this effort for smaller companies that have tried to set up or councils that have tried to set up their own companies they've all fallen over so we don't want that so if we're going to stick to the to the supplier hub model as it's called um then we obligate the existing big license, big uh, big license suppliers. That's that's, cri- that's crystal clear because they're not obligated to support communities. They are not no. obligated, no. Which is yeah, which is why you know why the, it's, it's it is the reason why um, not one single of the hundreds and hundreds of community energy groups that are exist right now sell directly to a customer. They've almost all of them got a uh, purchase power purchasing agreement, which is just for the export of their generation to a big utility, and we're buying it from the big utility and. And just to give the numbers for sort of real clarity, the average uh, pence per kilowatt hour that community groups are getting right now for their agreements is around about three and a half, I think. Um, whilst, you know, what do, we, what do we pay for as customers? For, for, you know, is it 20? It's upward, well upward of 20 Way pence up, per kilowatt yeah, hours yeah. now, yeah? Now, yeah. of course, in between those two amounts, there are important things that need to be covered and paid for, like, you know, the physical grid, the wires. But there's some profit taking too. We want to see that number close so that more groups can become viable because that's the ultimate aim here. We want to see more community-run generation and this is the way to do it. Think of an analogy like brewing local beer whereby, you know, if you have to pay a thousand pounds a year, sorry, a million pounds a year, because that's the kind of setup cost to be licensed. Imagine you wanted to brew some local beer, deliver it um, to local pubs and cafes, and you were told you have to pay a million pounds a year for your delivery van because it's using the road network. 
well, it doesn't work. You have to be a massive company. And then we would only have a handful of massive companies brewing and delivering beer. But we don't have that. We have lots of wonderful local brewing everywhere. And it's because the costs are proportionate. Okay. Just to summarize, Steve, it's not just an obligation on suppliers to support communities to piggyback on their licensing to deliver to communities. It's also about having a fair floor price that's going to be offered. And I think also Nigel in his piece says that it also needs, there needs to be a minimum term. So there needs to be, and at that point, communities, it starts to make sense much more. And I can, I can, I can see the market architecture in place to encourage this to happen. Absolutely. Yes, it's exactly that. So I want to pick up on, on this point of fairness. And I, I actually am thinking back to some work that, that Fraser did during his PhD, looking at where exactly and who owns or who has an ownership stake in local energy. Often we see these forms of energy appearing in places where there are greater resources, where people have the means or the capacity and the finances to develop such systems. So I I guess if we're very much thinking about this in in a kind of local community groups that are generating, selling to local people, and as part and parcel of that, you're able to reduce bills for those people. Can you see a situation where there could be kind of a negative knock-on effect for those communities where they may not have resources for one reason or another, either because there's less... um, less kind of uh, economic resource there or less power there. You know, c- can, you, can you see a potential downside to this is, is, I guess, where I'm going with it. I can see how it could work very well and empower communities. And, and I think that that is all brilliant. I guess I'm just trying to think about that, that bigger picture for how this could play out across the UK, you know, more widely. Yeah, the, the first thing I'd emphasize on that is it's really unfair at the moment. It's extremely unfair at the moment. It's far, it's far more unfair at the moment than, than, than what we're trying to create. And that's because, yeah, if you're if you're fortunate to live in a community with, um, they are mainly um, older um, people with very high acumen, uh, often retired and a lot of spare time. Um, they are able to kind of get things together and get a community energy group off the ground. Then, oh well, you're aren't you lucky? And you know your community and maybe you directly benefit from those things that are happening in your area. But because it's such a small number at the moment, it's incredibly unfair. You know, there, those, there's, a few, there's a few communities across the country that are, that are benefiting, whilst so many could and aren't. Now, is every single gonna, community going to benefit equally and, and, uh, and well from what we're proposing? No, of course not. <laughs> anyone who tries to, you know, anyone who tries to, to do that... Um, is, is lying to you. But we're going to make it a lot better. And the potential for generation is almost everywhere. And because you could have it, you know, we're, we're not like fixing the size of, of what a community energy company or cooperative could be, then the potential for it to work and benefit an area is pretty much all, it will pretty much cover the entire country. Urban areas can have generation too. You could have ground source heat pumps in parks. As I say, I'm in London. There are, there are, I think, six major underground rivers in London. There's potential to put um, turbines 
in them, hydro turbines. You know, there's it's not just a rural thing. Is is the point? You've obviously got solar on on roofs of buildings everywhere, particularly schools, Steve. Uh, and most of these sell that power through you know power purchase agreements at the moment. So you know, the question is, what could they get <laughs> if it was sold to the open market? Yeah. We went to when we did um, Glasgow Community Energy, which is that's exactly what we do. It's it's PPEs on schools, and when we did uh, like heavy, extensive community engagement. The main question we got at just about every session was, why can't we buy this power? Why why are we not able to access this as members of the local community who can see this stuff um, set up there? And that is working in you know more deprived communities and trying to do the, the redistribution thing. I think my question on it, Steve, and now this is accepting that I'm fully behind it and I can see the I can see how it unlocks the big hole in community energy finance that we've been, and I know Matt especially, has been digging into for a couple of years now. The question I have, I guess, is not to put more work on your shoulders, but is this part of a, a, a bigger picture thing? Is there more that we need to do to support communities to get this off the ground, to help community energy groups professionalise a bit more? This, this unlocks a lot of what we need to do, but is there more needed uh, to support communities and local areas to actually get their, their their energy projects off the ground in the first instant. I'm sure there is more. One thing that is uh, beyond the scope of what we're trying to do and, and not in the bill, uh, and I don't think it belongs in the bill, is that where you see this really working well is where the local authority is working really well with the community energy group. The, the example uh, I often give is uh, Plymouth energy community they're often you know highlighted as the sort of this shining bright example where the council and the and the group have really worked well together and are um, just cooperating <laughs> where we've we have chosen a a specific and what we think will be a very effective solution to what we say is perhaps the biggest of all the problems which is they can't sell directly to local people doing that makes it financially viable once it's financially viable if you, if you if you sort of trust enterprise and trust people's initiative and ability to to be enterprising then um, it will flourish and I'm, I mean I, I think you can be very confident on that you know you look at something like I mean I gave the brewing example before you know the explosion of, of brewing local beer and enterprise because it's via you it's financially viable where, where it's financially viable to do it it springs up everywhere yeah and I think there's something powerful and symbolic about being able to buy power from an asset that you can see which is community owned and and I do personally think that it that will encourage the market through that means as well. Steve, I, I want to ask you, uh, you've done this before, and we'll talk a little bit more about your background in terms of lobbying for uh, for change, legislative change. What does success look like for you with regards to this local electricity bill? And what might be the route to that success? Many of us, I think Becky Fraser and I, um, probably not especially au fait with that legislative process, well, not the nitty gritty of it, uh, maybe our listeners too. So what does that look like? What's going to keep you busy over the next year or so? So with, with this specifically, we initially drafted the local electricity bill ourselves um, and it got introduced as uh, what's called a private member's bill. So that's where a backbench MP can put it down. That's one method. That's one kind of route uh, to see legislation made, these, this, this backbench route. The other route is where the government introduced the legislation themselves and as a sort of subsection of that is the government could be introducing legislation that's similar to what you're trying to get through, um, and then you can amend that legislation, and then it kind of goes through that way. So um, that is what we're actually presented with as probably the, the best uh, option we have, because right now the government's energy bill 
is proceeding through Parliament. It started a couple of weeks back in the House of Lords. Very big bill, hundreds of pages, lots and lots of parts of you know the energy system covered in it. Um, and it's a it's a it's a an ideal vehicle um, for us to effectively amend the, what we've drafted into that. Um, the way the only way it ultimately works in any of those forms that I've just mentioned is you need the government to support the legislation. So we've got a cross-party group of 310 MPs now that are backing what we're calling for. As I say, it's cross-party. It's a very strong uh, cross-party. There's 120 Conservative MPs amongst them. Also, the Labour front bench have supported it. So effectively, probably we could count on all of the Labour Party, which is actually a lot more than that 310. So really, we're, we're looking at a parliamentary majority. But as of yet, the government have not said that they back this. They say that they support the aims of the bill. So they, they basically, they like the principal concept, but that's, you know, you've got to get them on the detail. We've got to agree the detail as we've been just discussing, you know, this, what we think needs to be an obligation on the licensed suppliers to make it happen. Now, if the government come back to us as part of negotiation and say, look, you know, we think there's another way this could work and they suggest a different mechanism and that genuinely looks like it would work, then fine. But, but whatever the mechanism, we want to see legislation on this to make sure it happens. Accepting that we're in a, a time of, um, let's say, uncertainty politically, um, what, what kind of timeline are you working to, Steve? When do you anticipate, or is it all a bit up in the air? No, no, it's not up in the air. Um, what happens at number 10 and who may or may not be the leader actually isn't, isn't, uh, isn't going to stop the fact that this energy bill is proceeding and will continue to proceed through Parliament over the next 10 months or so. Um, so across this parliamentary session, parliamentary session usually lasts about a year, um, and so that bill that bill is gonna is gonna go through, and we we um, are aiming to amend it. The first phase of that uh, initiative has already started. So at the at, at the energy bill's first debate, uh, which was actually in the House of Lords, it had what's called its second reading, which is basically <laughs> it's slightly confusing. The second reading is the first opportunity for parliamentarians to debate something. Um, and yeah, you know, I apologise to everyone at how ridiculously opaque our parliamentary system is. But uh, so it had its debate. We we had uh, a number of um, peers, so that's baronesses, lords, a bishop even stood up in the House of Lords. All of them said the local electricity bill presents a great model. We call on the government. We ask the energy minister: Will the government? support an amendment to this bill that does this. Uh, unfortunately, the minister did not say yes. The minister just said the standard government line, which we've been hearing for now for 12 months. And so we press on. But we do think, because as I've said, we've got such a huge number of MPs backing this, when the bill comes to the House of Commons, we do have a very real chance of success. I can't help but think, Steve, that there's something... So I know Becky's want to jump in, but ju just a very quick point here. We've heard from the, 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 the Conservative leaders, uh, as we're recording this, this is ongoing. Um, and uh, certainly Rishi Sunak has come out against onshore wind and saying, well, you know, we're going to uphold this. As this debate moves through Parliament, I mean, surely this is going to come up. You're talking about encouraging local supply sorry, local generation and supply. Well, to supply local electricity, you need generation. And actually, most community uh, electricity generation, certainly in England, uh, I mean, you know, lots of solar, um, north of the border in Scotland, more hydro. But wind is a big, big tool that these communities can, can leverage. Does that matter to the value that this bill potentially presents? 
it's certainly not as strong what we're what we're trying to achieve because of the fact that you you know you can't um, you can't build onshore uh, wind. It's almost impossible to to build onshore wind generation in uh, in in England because of the planning blocks um, that currently exist, the virtual moratorium that's to do with the way the planning rules were changed in 2015. Which incidentally is something else we campaigned on a few years back. Um, I remember. I remember. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, we had a big open. Uh, it was an open letter signed by lots of MPs, and we had, uh, I think it was about forty Conservative MPs among them, forty or fifty. I can't. Even, it was you know it was a good number, and that got we won we we won one of the two asks, which was um, for Onshore to be included in the um, in the state financing the contracts contracts for difference. So that was great. You know we got one of those two asks. We we chose to focus on this campaign, this community energy campaign. Because I think, you know, whilst, yes, England suffers from that virtual moratorium on wind, there's all the other kinds of generation which you can benefit from. And you can see by the amount of enthusiasm that this campaign's had, I think that was the right choice. And also, who knows, maybe, you know, maybe given the, given the winds of change, uh, if you excuse the pun, <laughs> we're going to see onshore wind happen. So. And this is UK Parliament. So obviously, you know, wind is happening through the CFDs. There's a lot of wind in the pipeline uh, coming into Scotland uh, through the CFDs. So actually, you know, unlocking this could unlock serious potential in Scotland for, for that onshore wind. I'm going to pause there because I can see Becky's uh, Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I was just thinking... <laughs> Yeah, you're talking about the, these obligations that would be placed on the uh, on the bigger energy companies. I mean, we've talked a lot about how the bill has been received, kind of through that parliamentary process. What's been your um, interaction with those energy companies? Like, have have they weighed in? You know, where ha, what is the kind of broader perspective from other organisations who could also have quite strong lobbying power? So, from the utilities, Good Energy over a year ago publicly backed this campaign and the local electricity bill um, and have, have been publicly calling on MPs to back it. Octopus have made um, some sort of warm no- noises, shall we say. I mean, they're kind of sort of doing it anyway a little bit. So I'm hoping that they'll they'll say, in fact, if anyone from Octopus is listening, you know, really be great to talk to you again because I think, you know, this really does line up with what you're already doing already. So why not, why not, you know, why not shine brighter and back this now? What's also really interesting, because it's not just the utilities that are part of the system, um, you know, our regional grid is run by six monopolies, the distribution network operators. Um, now, four of those publicly have backed the bill and they've lobbied MPs in their regions to back it too. So they, you know, that I think is pretty telling. And they're, they're the ones who, if we need more network upgrades to, the, to those physical wires, you know, they're going to have to make them. Um, and yet they still have publicly backed this they say they're keen, so uh, that's really encouraging. And indeed, the the the, the two that haven't, um, David Johnston, the lead sponsor of the bill, and myself, we are meeting with um, with the two remaining. So you know, hopefully, the fact they want to talk to us is going to lead to them saying yes as well. Well, and presumably, Ofgem as well is quite a big big player in this uh, too, with uh, you know weighing in and setting a lot of the regulations. So how do they inter- How will they interact with this? Well, I mean, Ofgem Ofgem are neutral on this, and they. Um, they need to be publicly because, of course, they can't, you know, be seen to be trying to influence the legislation that then sets the regulation that they must do. <laughs> so um, that's, you know, that's sort of right. No one at Ofgem has sort of said, oh, "This is a terrible idea. Stop. You know, this won't work." Nigel Cornwall, uh, in his um, work with us on this, is being assisted by uh, a number of energy system experts. One of them is Dr. Jeff Hardy, mm-hmm. uh, who 
was previously a, a friend of the pod, no less. Steve. Oh, he's somebody who had on fantastic. Time. Sorry, I haven't listened to all of your episodes, and I'm very sorry for just revealing that. Um, but uh, but yeah, so he he now of course he with his you know former senior role at Ofgem is very good to have him saying that this is a mechanism that will work. This should be done. It needs to be done. So that gives us confidence. Um, what I expect is that as we go into the ne- the negotiation on the detail of the actual legislative amendment that's going to be made and then actually becomes law in the next 10 months or so, we will start to um, bring Ofgem officials into the room as we are having those discussions with government to make sure that they're all, you know, either just nodding and saying fine or pointing out, you know, maybe some adjustments that need to be made because the angel is in the detail. I do wish, <laughs> I do wish there was an alliteration that would work for it, but there isn't, is there? But you know, the de- it is getting the detail right that makes things work and makes complex systems, you know, work and fixes problems. So you know, and we want to do that. So I guess that the next question is: we we talked a little bit about about timelines, about the process. How likely is this to succeed? I think, given the numbers of support we've got now those 310 supportive MPs, I think the likelihood is very good. I mean, I can't say it's guaranteed, but um, yeah, we, we met earlier this year with the energy minister, Greg Hans, and then with his officials. I believe his words that he has said to parliament that, that he wants to try and see this work in some way. If ultimately the government just say, no, we will push this to a vote on the floor of the commons and we might win that vote. And I don't think they will want that it to go that far. And I don't think it needs to go that far. I think we will end up um, talking, discussing, negotiating, agreeing and, and winning this and all shaking hands um, and actually seeing some success on the ground and more generation. I, I mean, I've seen it in the past. Our supporters, understandably, you know, watch um, what happens and they see the government saying no over and over again mm. and, they, and they can get disheartened. And we keep telling them that we've worked on campaigns like this in the past where the government have said, oh, you know, we're not sure. Yeah, it's a good idea, but oh, devil's in the detail. And then, oh, three years of that. And then suddenly they say, actually, totally, we agree. And yeah, it's great. And then the legislation goes through. And, I, and I've done it on multiple occasions on, you know, substantial pieces of legislation that have created real on-the-ground benefits. So um, I think there's every reason it can happen here again. Um, you know, don't get disheartened by what you see on the news. You know, government isn't this big evil beast. It's a complicated and they, they, they can be rational and they can do good things. I'm very happy to hear that, Steve. And and in, in that context, you know, our, our listeners, you know, we, we like to provide them with a route forward, really. You know, many people, particularly in this record-breaking heat that we've had in the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, concerned and wanting to make a difference. So in the context of what you do and in the context of lobbying for legislative change, what kind of lessons or tips could you could you offer our listeners about how they can get involved, not just with the local electricity bill, um, but also just more broadly? We've only come this far with this campaign because of how fantastic community groups of all kinds, not just energy groups, and people have been in helping by signing up to our newsletter and to the campaign, which you can do on our website, and then writing to their MP, and many of them writing again and again, and not just sort of taking a a fob off um, or a no as an answer. And that is how all the big campaigns I've worked on in the past have succeeded. So that is my my number one ask to to, to anyone listening to please, if you haven't, please sign up uh, to this campaign so you can do it on our website and then please write to your MP. Now what we do is we say forward any response you get 
to us and then we help people with um with replying back again and indeed even when mps say uh, oh you know i support this you know it's great there's still much more you can say and do because we need those MPs to be standing up and advocating for it in the Commons, which a lot of MPs have been doing. It's been brilliant, and a lot of them, when they stand up, they say, "You know, I've had lots of my constituents write to me on this, and I'm, I've, you know, that's why I'm saying this today." So it works. And then more broadly, the number one thing I think anyone can do to help stop the climate crisis is to be democratically active, because whilst we can all do our own things, which are good to do and important to do, we're going to need government to do a lot. And so pushing your elected representatives on specific changes, not just a general, oh, can you know, can you please advocate for, you know, better climate solutions? That's the problem is because an an MP can just say, yeah, of course I will. (laughs) It's when it's specific. And that's why these campaigns are so effective, because they are asking MPs to back something specific. I mean, we draft the bill for them first. And I know it works. When you put your recycling out each week at the doorstep, that was the first campaign I worked on, um, and it, it, it succeeded because it was the, the, the Household Waste Recycling Act 2003. So it succeeded because lots of people were lobbying their MPs, and the, the reaction of the government initially was, no, this won't work. You can go down to the bottle bank in the car park of the, you know, the local library or supermarket and do it there. What's the problem? Our recycling rates domestically were less than 10%. Yeah. Now they're well over 50%. You know, it works. We know this works. So that's the thing to do. Be democratically active. That is really valuable advice and something I think all of us, uh, not just listeners, but Becky Fraser and I can all, all, all take, take uh, home and it's about getting behind a particular movement. Steve, we've run out of time, but thank you so much for, uh, for your insights and we wish you all the best with the local electricity bill um, and we look forward to, to hearing how it all goes. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Local Zero and thank you so much again to our guest from this episode, Steve Shaw from Power for People. If you haven't already, do go find and follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter to get involved with the discussions going on over there. And feel free to email us with localzeropod at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. And if you can, we would really, really appreciate it if you can just take a minute to leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or in fact, anywhere you get your podcasts. This really, really helps us to spread the word about the podcast and reach new listeners. So if you can do that, we'd be super, super, super grateful. But until next time, thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Produced by Bespoken Media.